Good evening, everyone. My name is Simon Barrett, and this is another edition of Journey into Justice, a chance to uh, take a, a look inside the world of the legal profession. As always, I'm joined by my very good friend, author and attorney, Mark Bellow. Mark, welcome to the program. Simon, it's nice to be here as always. How are you? I was, I, I was intrigued by your uh, email this morning that uh, you, you would like to um, talk about what uh, you consider to be the most important legal issues and cases of 2019. There, there certainly were a lot of uh, cases, and um, many of them had great importance. I can't wait to um, hear what your uh, top uh, top contenders are. So, Mark, I will. Um, Hand the microphone over to you. Well, this is uh, either either one of the last or the last. I think uh, next week is is uh, what is it? New Year's Day or the day before New Year's Day? Something um, like that. But uh, as to whether or not we we actually have a podcast, considering uh, um, the festivities of the New Year and and. Uh, uh, a, a possible inebriated state and what have you uh, um, uh, assuming that this is either the last or one of our last podcasts for 2019 I thought we would kind of have a year in review legal issues that shaped the year the news uh, and the country for 2019 sound good? it does indeed now it, I, I'm not necessarily talking about uh, exciting, um, flashy, newsworthy stuff. Uh, uh, when I say important, I mean important. And to me, the most important case of the year, when you consider or issue, when you consider uh, its importance to the country, and we've discussed this on a previous podcast and that is the Supreme Court decision on gerrymandering. And while it's not sexy or even compelling to the average citizen, and the average citizen uh, doesn't even consider gerrymandering or may not even know what it is, but it probably is the most important legal case decided in 2019, and it has far-reaching impact on the fairness of our future elections in this country. Uh, you and I have discussed this in the past. Uh, you're, you're acutely aware of how important this issue is, but I thought we would revisit it today uh, considering uh, that it is, in my opinion, and I'm only one voice, but in my opinion, the most important thing that has happened 
in the legal world in 2019. Okay. Um, I, I know exactly what gerrymandering is, and um, 2020 is going to see yet another um, version of it, uh, care of the census. Um, but uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Why, why don't you explain uh, in simple terms what gerrymandering is? Well, it's essentially the uh, drawing of election districts uh, typically done by state and local legislatures. So uh, what the cases I'm talking about and what happened is in June, um, well, prior to June, the Supreme Court decided to uh, take, accept uh, two gerrymandering cases, Rucco versus Common Cause and Lamone versus Benesic. And they, these two cases were consolidated for a Supreme Court or for a Supreme Court ruling. And in a five to four vote, uh, with the court's more conservative members in the majority, the court closed the door on claims uh, related to um, unreasonable or unfair. Uh, drawing of districts to benefit one party or the, or another. Now, uh, today, uh, many of these issues uh, occur in, in Republican-majority districts, and the Republicans are taking advantage of these unfair district map drawings. Um, but whether you're a Democrat or whether you're a Republican, uh, what goes around comes around, as, as we all know. And the party that controls the state legislature draws the voting maps that help us elect candidates. So these decisions will impact, unless they're reconsidered at some point in some future case, will impact uh, future decisions to draw legislative districts and elect candidates. And what goes around comes around, and Democrats will someday have the advantage. Uh, so if I'm a Republican right now and I'm happy with these two decisions, I would suggest that they uh, be concerned uh, about what they wish for. But the Supreme Court ruled that challenges to partisan gerrymandering, which again is the practice in which the party that controls the state legislature draws voting maps to help elect its candidates, um, the court essentially ruled that almost any uh, gerrymandering decision is constitutional. Uh, John Roberts, who is now, uh, because of 
President Trump's recent uh, very conservative um, Supreme Court appointments, uh, Roberts has become the swing vote, and he's pretty conservative. So uh, there are four core uh, liberal Democrat justices, four very conservative Republican conservative justices, and Roberts, who is, quote, pretty conservative, unquote. Uh, He writes a majority opinion, understanding that politics uh, plays a role in drawing Western districts, and said that the Supreme Court is not entitled to second-guess lawmakers' judgments. Uh, Quoting him, we conclude that partisan gerrymandering, he even calls it that, partisan gerrymandering claims present political questions beyond the reach of the federal courts. Um, Now, gerrymandering is an ancient tool, uh, and partisan gerrymandering is as old as the country. But Republicans over the last few years have captured many state legislatures around the country, and they've been the primary beneficiaries of uh, the gerrymandered system. And they've essentially used um, software, uh, computer software, very sophisticated software. And as a result, you get some extremely oddly shaped voting districts uh, that are drawn in favor of their own party's candidates. Um, now, if by chance a Democrat uh, won that district, then they could turn around and employ the same tactics. Uh, so again, what goes around comes around, be careful what you wish for. Uh, Justice Elena Kagan, one of the uh Democratic uh, liberal candidate uh, uh, justices um, uh, was beside herself uh, in favor of American democracy. She claims that democracy will suffer because of these rulings. Quoting her, uh, basically she says, the practices challenge in these cases imperil our system of government. That's how strongly she feels about this, part of the court's role in that system is to defend its foundations. None is more important than free and fair elections. Um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and, um, well, those three joined Kagan in dissent um, Roberts did not say, and this is what's what's uh, strange about the ruling. Uh, I was going to say funny, but it's not funny at all. So I, I like the word strange better. Uh, he didn't say that the system was desirable. He basically said that they can't control it. 
uh, he, said, he said excessive partisanship in districting leads to results that reasonably seem unjust. And if that's true, if they seem unjust to him, then his majority decision is, excuse my French, a load of crap. Uh, reasonable <laughs> injustice is reasonable injustice. I mean, is exactly what the Supreme Court is supposed to prevent. Um, certainly, their job is to interpret the Constitution, and apparently, he's interpreting the Constitution in a way that, um, in his mind, suggests that gerrymandering is okay. But when you when you do it to the extreme, and and it, and it, it's so excessive that it produces what Chief Justice Roberts called, quote, unjust results, unquote. Something is manifestly wrong with his interpretation. And I would and I would opine that something is wrong with his definition of the court's mandate. Um, how could you possibly say that a that a policy leads to injustice and then say as a quote justice unquote of the Supreme Court that you don't have the power to fix the injustice that's absurd um, Kagan's, <laughs> it is indeed <laughs> Kagan's dissent uh was, by the way, brilliant, uh, and she pointed out that um, when you warp a, a district map, or when you draw a warp map, let's say, you reduce the weight of citizens' votes. That deprives them of the ability to participate equally in elections, Voters are punished for their political expression and their associations. And she concludes correctly, in my opinion, that these two injuries, the punishment for political expression and association, violate fundamental principles of equal protection and freedom of speech, the First Amendment, and the fourth, and these are very important constitutional rights, and I would opine, as she did, that uh, this violates the Constitution and is absolutely part of the Supreme Court's mandate. Now, let's compare the reasoning of these two justices. Roberts insists that the federal courts are unable to determine whether a partisan gerrymanderer has gone too far. Kagan, on the other hand, points out that plenty of lower, lower courts have done exactly that. They evaluate these gerrymandering situations all the time and they've been evaluated 
throughout history uh, by deploying essentially what has become known as the three-part test for constitutionality. The first part is to ask whether the map makers intended to assert their party's power and dilute the votes of their opponents. Clearly, in these cases, the answer is yes. Second, did their scheme to take advantage of the system succeed? Answer, in these cases, yes. Third, and this is important, Simon, did they have a legitimate nonpartisan explanation for their trickery? And if the answer is no to that question, then the gerrymandering effort is not constitutional, and it should be tossed out. And that seems to be the point that Roberts missed. Uh, Kagan said, and I, I like quoting her because her opinion is so brilliant, quote, if you are a lawyer, and I am, if you are a lawyer, you know that this test looks utterly ordinary. It's the sort of thing courts work with every day. In practice, the most important part of the test, its evaluation of the severity of a gerrymandering effort, often boils down to looking at the cold, hard data uh, in a particular state uh, and a particular district. Um, in this case, the North Carolina congressional map contained 10 Republican seats and three Democratic seats. Experts ran 25,000 simulations of the map using traditional nonpartisan redistricting criteria, and more than 99% of them produced at least one more seat. So This clearly suppresses the minority vote. And again, if you look at it from an equal protection standpoint, a voter suppression standpoint, a First Amendment standpoint, it's, it, it, it's, it's got to be unconstitutional. And uh, what's really troubling here, in my opinion, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you address it if you want, but it's the politicization, politic, politicalization of the law. These are legal issues, not political issues. And what's going on here is the Supreme Court is standing aside and letting the political overrule the legal. And that's a troubling trend. Um, oh, it, it's, a, it's a trend that I definitely do not like. Now, just to um, clarify, um, you, you correctly pointed out that gerrymandering's been going on for uh, a very, very long time. But, centuries. Yes, centuries. But um, 
it's so much easier today because we we have the census and all of this lovely data um, is just waiting to get mined to the extent that you know you, you can drill down and uh, figure out you know at street level at house level you know if someone's a registered uh, Democrat or registered Republican and um, you know a little bit of uh, clever code and you know Bob's your uncle you you can um, you know redistrict uh, an area um, to to the favor of um, whichever party you want I think quite frankly whichever, it's disgusting. Whichever, party, whichever party's in power yeah right you're, you're, you're right uh, 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 let me give you let me give you a great example that I read about I don't know if it's in one of these two cases or not I think I think it is but and I'm pretty sure it's the North Carolina situation you have a situation where there's a Republican district and a Democratic district, and the Republican district can sometimes swing Democratic because the university, or a university, I don't remember which one, sits right on the border of the two districts. And the university, where students typically will vote Democratic, sits in the Republican district. So the school all by itself swings, and the people will understand this example. Um, if they don't understand what gerrymandering is, this example will help them understand it. The school sits in the Republican district and sometimes swings the Republican district Democratic. So along comes a Republican-majority legislature, and they say, school, we're going to move you over to the Democratic district and end the Republican district at a line right before the school starts. And by moving the school and the school population into the Democratic district, while the Democratic district will, will always continue to vote Democratic, the Republican district will, some, will suddenly be a guaranteed Republican victory year after year after year just by changing that line from left to right, let's say, and moving the barrier to begin before the school rather than after the school. And that's, I'm pretty sure that's what happened in one of the two cases I cited. So yes. I, I think people can understand what I'm talking about. It's a very serious issue. Oh, I, it's... Very, very, very serious, uh, and yet um, I, I really, I really don't see a lot of hue and cry about it. I mean, no, it's because people don't understand it. People, people, it's it's very much like you know. I keep crying and, and, and whining <laughs> about tort reform and, and uh, how. Unless you're 
unless you're the victim of an accident, you don't understand what caps on damages or restrictions on access to courts are. And this is very similar to that. Until it happens to you, until you're the victim of an unfair uh, map drawer, or you're the victim of an accident, uh, as the Republican governor of Texas was, or the Republican chief executive of a, of a uh, red county in Michigan uh, was, unless you're catastrophically hurt in an accident, court reform doesn't mean anything to you. But suddenly when, you're, when your recovery or your right to damages is restricted, suddenly you get it. So unless it strikes you in the heart, and that's the problem with gerrymandering, uh, it's a silent killer, not a very public killer. Um, you're, not gonna, you're not even going to realize how badly it affected the election. Um, you know, name name a, a, a town that that might otherwise vote one way or the other, gerrymander the hell out of it, and suddenly you find that even though the vast majority of voters are the uh, members of the opposite party, the minority party wins every time. That's a terrible result, and it's unconstitutional in my opinion. And that's what you're facing when you're looking at gerrymandering. Right. Is there a, um, a sensible solution? Or um, no. is, is this just a, a round and round uh, you know, argument? Well, the, the sensible solution is to elect people with sense. Um, right now, we elect, we continue to shoot ourselves in the foot and elect people with nonsense. And the best example of that sits in the White House right now. Um, <laughs> what we need, what we need, is somebody to appoint a Supreme Court justice or two um, that uh, would favor a more sensible approach to. Uh, and again, I'm not talking about gerrymandering in general. Somebody's got to somebody's got to draw districts, but to do it in a partisan way just to skew the election uh, that should not be permitted. And if it produces what Judge Roberts calls or Justice Roberts calls unjust results it should be declared unconstitutional and shame on him. He ought to be embarrassed. You expect something like that from Clarence Thomas. You don't expect it from John Roberts. Right. Um, actually, uh, there's been some rumors about uh, Clarence. Um, I, I heard a rumor that he was contemplating uh, retiring, but, Quite frankly, well, I find that hard to believe. I, you know, again, the the issues of retirement and taking one for the team. Uh, you know, the idea of him retiring. I think the rumors start 
when you say to yourself or you say to a Mitch McConnell, if Trump loses in 2020, then a Democrat might be um, nominating Clarence Thomas's replacement. So why not retire now rather than a year from now? The criticism of um, of Justice Kennedy's retirement as a swing vote uh, was why not wait till 2020 and see if uh, a, a more a more sensible um, commander in chief is elected? Um, perhaps Kennedy wasn't as uh, middle of the road as people said he was because he certainly uh, in, a, in allowing um, Trump a second appointment uh, skewed results like this one. So we'll yeah. see. I, 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 don't, I don't see Thomas retiring, but I, if, he, if he does, he would do so uh, to, quote, take one for the team, unquote. Right. Because McConnell, McConnell has said, point blank, even though he um, refused to take up the Merrick Garland appointment by President Obama, the hypocrite that he is, he said he would seat uh, a new justice in the final year of Trump's presidency if he had the opportunity to do so. When he said okay. the opposite. Uh, back in the Obama years, when Merrick Garland was nominated in Obama's last uh, year in office, as you and the people might recall. Oh, I do indeed. So, um, anyway, anyway, stay, staying right on, staying right on point with what we're talking about comes the second very important legal issue. Uh, you may not consider this an important legal issue, but I sure do. And that is the health of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, oh that be, yeah, <laughs> that might be that might be the most important legal issue in the country right now. Um, uh, we can't afford another Donald Trump Supreme Court pick. And as I indicated, the evil hypocrite from Kentucky, the guy who refused to convene a hearing on the nomination of. Merrick Garland says that he will absolutely seat a new justice, even if it happens in Trump's fourth year in office. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, God bless her, is 86 years old. She was recently hospitalized uh, for some kind of virus and was given intravenous fluids and antibiotics following uh, about with pancreatic cancer uh, in August of 2019, the doctors declared that her tumor was treated and that, that she has no other uh, disease anywhere in her body. But the doctor's positive statement uh, do not give me any comfort. Um, it is vital, absolutely vital, that she outlive this presidency. Um, (laughs) 
She's battled cancer four times since she was first diagnosed with colon cancer in 1999. And uh, as a country, um, we need to pray, literally pray hard for her health and longevity. Uh, <laughs> that, to me, to me, uh, those issues may be the most important um, in 2019. Um, that does it for the Supreme Court. That, that's that's my number two issue: is is the health and well-being of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. God bless her. Uh, I wish her a long life. <laughs> to, to quote uh, or, or misquote um, some uh, TV pundits, you've got to remember she's a tough old bird. That's true. That's the <laughs> notorious RBG. <laughs> right. And I, I sincerely hope that, uh, you know, she um, carries on. And on and on, because you're, you're right that the, the uh, idea of a a, a third uh, supreme pick by uh, oh Trump, I mean, it, it just boggles the mind. Oh my God! Anyway, um, the third, the third. Uh, important case in 2019. Um, And it's kind of a follow-up of a 2018 case, even though the two are not connected in any way. But you had the Harvey Weinstein case in 2017-2018. And in 2019, you got the Jeffrey Epstein case. And while I... Well, I don't think it, it... in and of itself, it doesn't carry the weight of the two issues we just discussed. It doesn't affect the direction uh, and um, well, the direction uh, of the country as the makeup of the Supreme Court and the. Uh, drawing of maps in, in uh, uh, elections does. Um, but, but nonetheless, it's an important case uh, for two different reasons. Um, most of our listeners are, unless they've been hiding under a rock or, or in a coma or asleep for, uh, for six months, most people are aware of who Jeffrey Epstein is and that he was found dead uh, last August in his jail cell where he um, resided after being um, charged uh, and awaiting trial on sex trafficking charges. Um, The New York medical examiner ruled his death a suicide. How do you feel about that, Simon? Do you believe that? You know, I've read all (laughs) sorts of uh, things, and um, conspiracy, conspiracy theory. 
<laughs> yes, yes, yes. I mean, um, there's a conspiracy theory under, uh, you know, under every rock. Um, you know, my one of my favorites is um, how many people mysteriously committed suicide um, when involved with Hillary Clinton. And I mean, that that's that's a a conspiracy theory that's years old, and it just carries on. I I see it mentioned. I won't say every day, but at least once a week on Facebook. <laughs> you know, well, the thing, the, the thing about it, the thing, the thing about Epstein is, uh, and again, I, I, I don't think I'm telling stories that people don't know. Uh, but he was very wealthy, and he was very successful. He was a money manager. And um, for lack of a better word, friend to the rich and famous. And many of them, after his arrest, were quaking in their boots about what Epstein might say about them in an effort to avoid a longer sentence. Uh, He has a history of that. Uh, he was sentenced once before in the early 2000s, um, and he offered to turn state's evidence on a lot of, uh, shall we say, uh, wealthy people um, who were accused of various crimes. And as a result, he got a sweetheart of a deal, which I'll go th- over in a, in a few seconds. Um Uh, he he has been accused of sexually abusing dozens of underage girls. Uh, he was indicted, as I indicated earlier, in 2007 and served 13 months in a county jail. Who was the federal prosecutor, the U.S. attorney that signed that sweetheart deal? Alexander Acosta, who, uh, whose penalty for uh, providing Epstein with that deal was to become Trump's, Trump's uh, labor secretary. And as Epstein got charged again, Acosta took a lot of heat and was forced to resign. Now, this time around, in 2019... Epstein was arrested and charged with sex trafficking again, uh, apparently for recruiting young girls um, bluntly to abuse um, in his New York and Palm Beach homes. He faced a 45-year prison term if he was convicted. He claimed that the Encounters were all consensual, and that the girls told him that they were all 18. Um, at least one woman claimed that he raped her, 
back in 2002 when she was 15. Two other women claimed that he flew them from New York to Florida and pressured them to have sex with them, with him rather, while he was on a work release from jail. Um, but the most important part of the story is that it is, it is the ultimate example of the double standard that applies when you're rich and famous. Uh, it was first exposed in the Harvey Weinstein case, as I indicated. That case caused the birth of the Me Too movement, and Epstein's case shows that nothing has really changed. Um, when authorities began to investigate Epstein, he hired Alan Dershowitz and Kenneth Starr. Um, Kenneth Starr. Remember him? Oh, the yes, that, indeed. <laughs> the, the, guy that, the guy that called Bill Clinton immoral um, for Palacio in the White House represents Jeffrey Epstein, the, the sexual abuser of minor children. But essentially, the two powerful lawyers were able to convince prosecutors to go easy on him, despite all these allegations. Um, and the reason that they were able to persuade prosecutors to go easy on him was because aside from his collection of young girls, he also had a collection of famous friends. Which, which happened to include Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. Um, the allegations are that these friends, and I don't mean Trump and Clinton necessarily, but um, powerful friends may have participated in the abuses uh, or more likely their cover-up or, or his light sentencing. Um, he has certainly, until recently, been doing this for a long time completely under the radar. Um, only recently, obviously, and he had the ultimate uh, comeuppance, but only recently did he... Um, come under public scrutiny. His ability to avoid serious punishment for years is the crux of why I think this is an important case. It's a reminder that uh, our justice system continues to be a place where a young woman's word as compared to the wealth and power of an influential man uh, it doesn't hold a candle to that power and the system continues to ignore these the cries of these young women um, wealth and power as used in the legal system. And my books 
if you think about it, my books are uh, studies in in these kinds of power abuses. Um, the legal system has to change, has to start uh, listening to the average person when um, they are going up against the rich and powerful. And hopefully that is the important message uh, of the Me Too movement and of the Epstein case. Um, Interestingly, as part of what I'm describing, one would think that Epstein's dead, his case is over. But the investigation into his case and into his crimes is still ongoing. Uh, These women are now pursuing civil claims against his estate. And uh, I don't know how many people out there know the difference between civil and criminal, but civil is when you when you sue the individual or his estate for money damages. Criminal is when the state charges him with criminal behavior. So maybe we'll get to the bottom of all of this anyway through those two um, efforts. Uh, Simon, uh, one last thing, and that is to, to illustrate what I'm talking about with regard to power, Back in 2007, before these recent cases, the FBI actually indicted Epstein, uh, and they prepared a 53-page sex crimes indictment that should have or could have sent him to prison for life. That is the indictment where he cut a deal with Acosta and served only 13 months. Now compare this to any criminal who you might know. He didn't serve time in a federal or state prison. He served it in a private wing of a Palm Beach County jail. On top of that, he was granted work release, and he got to go to an office outside of the jail for 12 hours a day, six days a week, despite the fact that the Palm Beach Sheriff's Department had a policy of no work release for sex offenders. Why? Because his deal was called a non-prosecution agreement, and it granted immunity to any potential co-conspirator. What that means is that any of Epstein's powerful friends who were involved in his crimes or the cover-up of his crimes, would face no consequences. So he used his leverage and power to get a sweetheart deal. Part of the deal, Simon, and this is another example of what I'm talking about, when you're facing charges, your accusers, the victims of your crimes, have a right to show up in court and tell the judge their story as he sentences you. This plea was done in secret. The victims were not notified of his plea deal. They did not they were not offered the right to appear in court 
and talk about what he did to them. It was done behind their backs. And just so the people know, there's a federal law called the Crime Victims' Rights Act. And that behavior by Acosta violated the Crime Victims' Rights Act, which allows, mandates actually, not allows, mandates or gives the victims an opportunity to testify at the sentencing hearing. That 53-count indictment reflected the charges against 30 young women. Not a single one of those 30 were permitted to attend his sentencing hearing. Um, clearly, he he was able until recently, and uh, obviously he suffered the ultimate penalty, but until recently he was completely able to uh, avoid any serious consequences for his behavior. And that's why I think uh, this commentary on the Me Too movement and giving uh, the uh, giving young women poor people, impoverished people, uh, not well-to-do people, giving them access to the system consistent with the access that is provided wealthier or powerful individuals is an important aspect of the case. Uh, And hopefully uh, we will see a change in how the justice system deals with these kinds of power differentials. And that's why I think the Epstein case and consistently consistent with it, the Weinstein case is so important. Uh, You may be aware that the Weinstein case I think is uh, going to be tried or the trial is going to begin in January 2020. So that's um, that's my what is it the third example the fourth example? Uh, yeah, I think that's a very important case and situation for the justice okay. system to wrap its arms around. You um, started that uh, uh, observation off with uh, talking about the difference between. Criminal and civil. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. And yes, everyone should have their day in court. And if you can't, if you can't get it um, via criminal charges, then civil is, you know the only other way to go. Um, I would just cite uh, O.J. Simpson. Great example. Um, Found not guilty uh, 
for criminal charges, found guilty as hell for civil uh, charges. And I I believe the original um, uh, fine was something like uh, $16 million. Um, I think think it was far more than that, but the problem was uh, I want to make two comments about what we're talking about. Okay. Uh, the problem, the problem with civil, is is that the defendant, in this case Epstein, in that case Simpson, has to be collectible. You have to either have right. insurance, or or be able to collect from the assets of the defendant. In the Epstein case, uh, he's he's a multi 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 millionaire. And his estate has plenty of money. The question is whether there'll be any left by the time the victims uh, get to uh, any kind of uh, arbitration or trial that uh, begins a process of liquidating his estate. Uh, the other issue is, and this is important, uh, and I'm glad you brought it up, the reason why Simpson was not convicted in the criminal case but found responsible in the civil case is the burden of proof is much different in a criminal case a person must be found guilty by uh, reasonable doubt by a reasonable doubt standard so they determined that there was reasonable doubt as to his guilt in a civil case all you have to do is show a preponderance of the evidence. That can be 50.5 versus 49.5. It could almost be a 50-50 call. You just have to tip the scales a little bit and you collect civil damages. In, In criminal court, you have to find a person guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and that's a much, much tougher standard. And it's the burden of the prosecution to prove guilt. It is not the burden of the defendant to prove innocence. So those are the, that's the difference between civil and criminal, and that's why a guy like Simpson uh, could be found, even though I didn't agree with the criminal decision, that's why a jury could find him innocent, but a civil jury could find him, quote, guilty, unquote. The point I was trying to make was enforcement of the, um, the, the penalty. There is no enforcement as far as I can see. You know, well, there is, there, is if you, there is if you have the money. And Simpson had money, but, but he was able to manipulate... Um, quite well when when the Goldman family tried to uh, get paid. He was able to manipulate uh, and liquidate assets to prevent collection. But but they they pursued him quite vigorously, and and his life has been in, including incarceration. Uh, his life has been. I'm not, I, uh, 
believe me, there's no sympathy here, but his life has been kind of hell ever since that civil verdict, um, caused mainly by uh, Ron Gold, uh, uh, not, not Ron Gold, but the father, I, I forget his name, Fred Goldman. Right. Fred Goldman. Fred Goldman's uh, uh, almost relentless pursuit of him financially, um, his inability to earn a living, his inability to hang on to any of the money if he earned a living. And as a result, um, he did some bad things that got him thrown into into prison where he belongs. So I have no sympathy for him, but... but, uh, there was some success in Goldman's pursuit of, uh, of O.J. Simpson. Um, uh, by the way, to your point about civil responsibility, if you think about civil cases where there's no insurance or where a person isn't as rich as perhaps Jeffrey Epstein was or O.J. Simpson was, um, it's difficult to collect money damages from someone who doesn't have the means to pay them. So even if you win civil damages, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to collect. Right. Um, uh, it, it looks like we're running out of time. I don't, I don't know how much time we have. but um, We got uh, about two, two minutes. <laughs> okay, the last two issues uh, – uh, I, I have some long-winded um, comments about these two issues, but since we're out of time, I won't uh, uh, take the time, but I will mention what they are. The first one is immigration and immigration reform. I think that is uh, absolutely one of the major issues of 2019, 2020, and beyond. Uh, this country and this administration and this Congress needs to get a handle on immigration and immigration reform and start start treating people at the border with some dignity and respect. Um, And I'll leave it there. I I had a, I had some, some proposals and suggestions about, about that, but, but uh, we'll move that for another time. Right. I'll I'll tell you what we're going to do, Mark. Um, you're going to have, and I'm going to have, a simply fabulous Christmas. And we'll be back again uh, next Monday, and we're going to pick up on those uh, very points. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll finish this discussion next week. That's a good idea. Yep. I've got three, okay. more, I've got three, more, three more kind of important issues that I think... Uh, are uh, bellwether issues for 2019-2020. Okay. And, and we'll um, leave it there. One of, the, one of them I is, give away is the great. This is Simon Barrett wishing everyone a happy, healthy, and safe week. We'll be back again next Monday. Till then, goodbye. Bye, everybody. <laughs>